Well, last week we ascended one of the great mountain peaks of the scripture in Romans 8, 28 through 30. But we're not really descending much now because there's another great mountain peak on the horizon in verses 37 through 39. So have you ever been in what they call a mountain pass? See, a mountain pass is where a path for crossing a mountain range is usually at the saddle point between these two higher peaks. Mountain ranges are very difficult to travel, obviously, making mountain passes very important. The top of a pass is usually very flat. It's usually the only flat area around, good for building buildings and roads and railways. In the midst of a mountain range, you get some of the best views possible on that saddle between the mountain peaks. A mountain pass is one of the most beautiful places in the mountains. Well, for these next two weeks, it's in the mountain pass with these great mountain peaks of Romans, you know, 8, 28, and 30 behind us. The great mountain peak of Romans 8, 37 through 39 in front of us. And we're in the midst of this most beautiful powerful mountain peak passages in the Bible. And so, when you're in the midst of such beauty, what do you do? Your senses are alert, your head's on a swivel, you're looking around at all you can do, your senses are on overload as you gaze at the awe-inspiring view, as we gaze at the awe-inspiring truth of God's word. So please open your scriptures. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to read from mountain peak to mountain peak. From verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8. 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, we also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, now we come to you, having just read your inspired, inerrant, all true word. These words now, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit has preserved for us, that the Holy Spirit has given to us. Now we pray, Holy Spirit, bring them alive to us in our hearts and our minds, challenging us, comforting us, giving us wisdom and truth, changing us, conforming us to the image of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as you read, perhaps uh, you noticed there all the questions that are in this passage. There are actually seven questions in the nine verses, from verses 31 through 39. Each question kind of ramps up the intensity, right? Until it finally concludes and crescendos on that amazing love of God. Each question is simple. Simple to understand, simple to answer, but yet each question teaches us more and more about the great salvation with which God has given to us. Each question teaches us that our salvation is forever secure in God's hands. Each question deepens our confidence. Each question strengthens our assurance in our great God's salvation. I just love how Paul starts off there, verse 31. It's that first question, what then shall we say to these things? Or as another translation put it, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? As he starts to descend the mountain peak of verses 28 through 30, he looks back and he says, in face of all this amazing truth, What is there left to say? Of course, one obvious response to the question would be to say hallelujah. You know, to say amen. To just stand there with our mouth open at the amazement of the awe of God's word. Now, haven't you been there before when no words can adequately express what you're seeing? Perhaps maybe it was in one of those majestic, you know, mountain vistas. Maybe it was that quiet, perfect sunset on the beach. You know, as a salt smell fills the air and the ocean waves methodically come on shore. Maybe it was more simple than that. Maybe it's more common than that. Maybe it's just seeing a a deer grazing outside your window. So peaceful, so powerful that you stop all that you're doing, and you gaze at the wonder, you stare at the beautiful sight. Perhaps those moments have happened to you as you watch your children or your grandchildren, and your eyes swell up with tears as you're struck by God giving you such a gift in your life as your children, your grandchildren. There are these moments in our lives where words are hard to come by to truly express the wonder, the gratitude, the beauty as we see the hand of God. Paul is at just such a moment. He's at just such a moment where he's seen God's truth 
this unbreakable chain of God's goodness and God's salvation. So in poetically powerful prose, he tries to write out in words what the Holy Spirit is inspiring within him, illuminating within his heart and his mind. Oh, what shall we say in response to all these things of a God who has taken our condemnation who has set us free in Christ Jesus from sin and death, of a God who has raised us to life as he did his own son, of a God who dwells within us, adopting us as his own child. Oh, what shall we say in response to all these things of a God who has made us fellow heir with his own son, Jesus Christ, our blessed elder brother, of a God who knows our weaknesses, And prays for us. Of a God who works all things together for the good of those he has saved. Oh, what shall we say then in response to all these things? Of a God who conforms us into the likeness of a son. Of a God who foreloved us. Predestined us. Called us. Justified us. Glorified us. Oh, what shall we say in response to all these things? things. We stand with the great inadequacy of our words. We can but say hallelujah and amen. What an amazing, wonderful, awesome God we serve. Folks, this is important. We must not lose sight of just how awesome our God is, just how awe-inspiring our God is. We must not lose sight of just how beautiful his salvation is. We must not lose sight of who our God really is because it inspires our willful obedience to God because it flows from this overwhelming sense of his majesty and of his will. Our ardent prayers to God flow from this overwhelming sense of his purpose and his sovereignty. Our heartfelt worship to God flows from this overwhelming understanding of his truth and his holiness. Perhaps today the most important thing you can do as a Christian today is to look anew at the beauty of your Savior, to look anew and to be amazed, to look afresh at the character of our God and all that he has done and dwell upon the wonder of it all. As the hymn writer said, the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. So in this you know, ordained moment by God for Paul in this great moment of reflection where his heart cries out, what shall we say then in response to all of these things? What does he write next? If God is for us, who can be against us? How beautiful, right? How how powerful. Now, most often for us, when we use the word if, We use it conditionally, right? We use it like this. We say, if this happens, then this will happen. But that's not how this word if is used here. The if here could even more better be translated as since. 
And the idea of that second phrase isn't just a list of, you know, who could be against us. But the idea here is who can stand against us. So what Paul is saying here is, since God is for us, who can stand against us? Since God is for us, who can stand against us? Beloved, God is for you. It's not a maybe. It's a fact. If you are a child of God, you can have unwavering confidence. God is for me. Say it with me. Say it out loud with me. God is for me. It's true. God is for you. He's working all things out for your good. God is for you. His salvation is an unbreakable chain of the certainty of his plan and his love. God is for you. He is shaping you. He is molding you into the likeness of his son. God is for you even when there's all this stuff that's against us. One wrote, whatever happens to me in this world, I know that God is for me. That knowledge is humbling as well as comforting. Well, as we look later in the passage uh, at the many things described that are against us, right? Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine, you know, being in need of food or nakedness, being in need of shelter or danger or sword, meaning death. And that's just a list from verse 35. There are a lot of things against us. As Christians, the world is against us. This world system around us is much more aligned with evil than it is with God. Jesus said in John 15, 18, and 19, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. The world is against us. Satan is against us. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is against us. Sin is against us. James says in James 1, 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire that when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Sin is against us. And we could go on and on and on. There are a lot of things that are against us. And here we are, right? Just us, with all these mounting things against us, all the challenges of life coming at us, the world system and Satan and sin and our own selfishness, all taking up arms to take us down. And there we stand with no hope. There we stand with no strength to stand against such unsurmountable foes 
Unless, of course, we have somebody who's standing with us. And that someone who's standing with us is greater than all these things. Unless, of course, we have someone for us that is infinitely stronger than all these things. And beloved, we do. We do. God is for us. God is for us. Who can stand against us? Answer, no one. Nothing. Remember the story in the Old Testament about how God told Moses to send in the 12 spies to spy out the promised land? It's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. They came back 40 days later with this great report, right? The land is lush. It's flowing with milk and honey. The produce of the land is amazing. But then they said, however... The people who dwell on the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw descendants of Anak there, giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. They said, we are like grasshoppers to them. And they concluded... We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. How did the people react to this report? Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept at night, and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt or or we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land so that we could fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. See, they looked around them at the formidable forces arrayed against them. They can not defeat them. They looked around them and saw everything that they could not do. And fear and anger and rebellion gripped their hearts. That is, of course, with the exception of two. Right? Caleb and Joshua. Yes, they have the exact same report. The exact same report, the exact same amount of people, the exact same challenges. But they've come to a different conclusion. They said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of this land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Look to the Lord, they said, who is with us. And don't fear what is against us. What were they saying? Since God is for us. Who can stand against us? 
Yes, all those mighty people are against us. But God is for us. And God for us is much stronger, much more powerful than anything or anyone who could stand against us. See, Caleb and Joshua were right. They came to the right conclusion. So before you today are formidable foes. The world system, Satan, sin, even our own hearts. We are like grasshoppers in the face of such foes. So what are you going to focus on? Are you going to look at all the difficulties? Are you going to look at all the challenges ahead? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get fearful? Are you going to rebel against God? Are you going to look at who is for you? The one who is stronger than any of the foes. The one who is greater than any of the challenges. Folks, God is for you. Who can stand against you? No one. Nothing. That's the truth. Beloved, that simple statement should fill us with such confidence, such assurance, such trust, such obedience, such love, because God is for us. Nothing can stand against us. Well, how do we know that's true? Great words, right? Amazingly powerful words. But how do we know that's true? How do we know that God is actually for us? What has God done to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that God is for us? He proved it. He showed his love and his power for us in the most ultimate way possible. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you are a follower of Christ here today, you have the certainty that God is for you because he proved it by not sparing his own son, but giving him up for you. Your confidence in God, your assurance of his love and power, your hope and new life is found at the foot of the cross of Christ. And only at the foot of the cross of Christ. I think that maybe perhaps as Paul wrote, the account of Abraham and Isaac 
came to mind. In Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac are a picture of God the Father and Jesus the Son. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham obeyed God. And as they were going, Isaac asked, Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Well, we all know that God did not let Abraham sacrifice his son. Genesis 22 says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and beheld. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. You see, Abraham spared not his son. He was about to give him up. But God stopped him and provided for himself the lamb. God commanded Abraham to spare his son. Abraham, Abraham, you don't need to give up your son. I'll provide the lamb. Abraham spared his son and in his place sacrificed God's provided lamb. You see the picture here? What Abraham did not need to do, God did. God provided the lamb. His own son. As John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, when that moment came with God's own son, his beloved son, his only begotten son, when that time came for his sacrifice on that very same mountain, God did not stay the hands of the crucifixion. No, God willingly spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. God stopped Abraham because he knew all along that the son to be sacrificed could only be his son, his lamb. And God did it. In those horrific moments on the cross, God actually spared not his own son for us. The only place of life and hope and assurance is at the foot of the cross of Christ. God's active and willing choice was to spare not his own son from being the sacrificial atonement, from being the sin bearer, from being the propitiation. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loved us, he gave his son for us. I mean, is there a, a bigger wow ever? I mean, this is the most amazing truth in all of earth, in all of time. This is the 
central truth of all time. So the question comes to us, is it the central truth of your life? Is it? Well, let's take a closer look at verse 32. Let's break it down into three sections. First is the Father, second is the Son, third is for believers. First is he, God the Father, who did not spare his own son. As we saw in the illustration of Abraham and Isaac, God was unsparing of his son. He did not exempt his son out of his plan. Oh, how he loved his own son, right? His one and only son. Paul is making it clear that this is his own son, his one and only son. This is his special son. This is the special relationship. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the word that was with God from the very beginning. Oh, but you know, in our earthly thinking, we certainly would have exempted our sons, right? We certainly would have exempted our children out of the pain, especially if we knew it was coming. And God didn't do that. He loved his son. He knew what was coming, but yet he let his cruel death still happen. He spared not his son. God chose his son to become sin for us so that we might become children of God, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one of us to his own way. The Lord has laid on him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He spared not his own son, but gave him up for us. One commentator said that it makes you think, does God love us more than he loves his own son? Well, of course not. But yet it does show us just the amazing breadth and depth of the love of God for us. As a parent, I can't imagine a greater expression of love than to spare not your own son for someone else. That truth should bring us to new heights of worship and service and dedication. Like the third verse of the hymn that we sang, how great thou art in that third verse. And when I think that God his son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. The truth of God, not sparing his own son for us, should lead us into a lifetime of worship and service 
and dedication to our great and awesome God. Well, next we see the Son, God's own Son, whom he gave up for us. To give up is to deliver or to hand over. It's the same word that's used in the Gospels to describe Jesus being delivered to be crucified. And this action isn't just the action of God the Father, but it's also the action of the Son. It's not just that God the Father gave up Jesus for us, but that Jesus gave up himself for us. In the Good Shepherd passage in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I've received from my father. It's not just that God did not spare his own son, but Jesus did not exempt himself from his father's will. It was his own act of choice. So to rework that hymn a little bit, and when I think that God, the son, himself not sparing, went willingly to die, I scarce can take it in. Then sings my soul, my Jesus, my God, my Savior to thee. How great thou art. See, this sentence of verse 32 is perhaps one of the most succinct and powerful presentations of the gospel. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. But there is yet a third part to verse 32, one that focuses on the believer. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Paul is using here a simple, logical argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has already done the hardest thing, if God has already done the most important thing, if God has already done the most sacrificial thing, if God has already done the most valuable thing that could ever be done, if he's already done the greater, sparing not his own son to secure our salvation, then he certainly will do the easier things, the less important things, the regular things, the lesser things, and give us all things. If God has given us his very greatest. Won't he give us his ordinary? If God didn't spare his son for us, do you think he's going to hold out on you now? I mean, do you think he's going to let you, let you go now? Do you think he's going to stop being gracious to you now? If, if it costs me and my son everything to give you salvation do you think I'm not going to give you everything now? Everything that you need? It's what God is saying to us. Of course he is. The great assurance of our salvation is the cross of Jesus Christ. The great assurance of God's continued grace in our lives that gives us everything we need to love him and to serve him is found in the cross of Christ. Because you see that last phrase says, look closely, 
how will he not also with him, with his son, graciously give us all things? What's God going to give us? He gives us with Christ, because of Christ. It is our being in him where God graciously gives us all things. It is God giving to his son that he's given to us who are in him. One wrote, God delivers up his own son for us. And in so doing, he is willing to give us everything that he has promised and set apart for his son. It's always about Christ. It's never about us. We have salvation because of Christ. We have life because of Christ. We have all things because of Christ. It's always about Christ. A distressed father sat at the bedside of his comatose son who was hurt playing basketball. At a crucial point in the game, the 16-year-old lunged for an errant pass going out of bounds. As he toppled over a spectator's chair, one of the legs caught him in his stomach and damaged vital organs. Because he felt little pain, the team continued to play through the game's final minutes while he was hemorrhaging internally. By the time the pain grew enough to warrant a trip to the hospital, it was almost too late. The doctors worked frantically to save him, but the outcome was uncertain. Though the son would eventually recover, those awful hours of waiting for the slightest signs of recovery forced family members to ask questions they'd never faced before. The father was alone one evening on his bedside shift when the pastor visited Trembling with emotion, the father asked, Will God take my son to punish my sin? No, said the minister. No. Searching for words that would bring comfort and grant renewed trust in God that this father so desperately needed, he said, The Lord will not condemn your son. For your sin, he couldn't because he already condemned his son for your sin. He couldn't because he'd already condemned his own son for our sin. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, believer, is that the central truth of your life? Do you live in awe of your God? In awe of all that Christ has done for you? Or perhaps today, you've never come to Christ Perhaps today is your day to finally gaze at the cross and see your Savior. And to look 
and all that he's done for you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, now in these moments we come to you in awe, in worship, in wonder. We come to you stupefied in our own inability to put our arms around the majestic truth that you spared not your own son for us, proving forever that you are for us and that nothing can ever stand against us. You will graciously, because of your son, continue to give us all things. Lord, it's amazing. We're humbled. We're convicted. Lord, help us to live this out. Help us to figure out in our daily life what does it mean to live in the light of such love and such sacrifice. Lord, I pray as well that there's some here in this room or maybe even online who just have never looked at Jesus on the cross and said, my Savior. Maybe right now is your moment to do that. To humbly come before him, admitting your sin, admitting how you fall short, admitting your need of a Savior, and then believing, believing that Jesus is the one, the one that was on that cross for your sin, that died for you in your place. And then confessing him, confessing him as your Savior, confessing him as your Lord, confessing your life as an act of worship and obedience to love now your Lord and Savior. You can do that right now in your own words, from your heart. Pray to him. Admit and believe and confess. So Lord, we come to you now. Just re-energizing our thoughts once again of our wonderful Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.